Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 122 of Control the Controllables. Have you ever wondered what it's like to hit with some of the top stars in the game? I was always a little bit nervous, but I think when you walk out onto Arthur Ashe and you're playing with Simona Halep and you come off and you feel like you've you've you know you've given her what she needed and you've played well and you know it's a great practice i haven't found a better feeling yet in in tennis and that is our very own soto tennis's mike digby i'm pleased to say that mike came to work at the academy about 18 months ago and our our path first crossed back at wimbledon 2019 where he was as a hitting partner and he spent Every morning with myself and Evan Hoyt, as Evan prepared to play ATP Challenger events on the hard courts in the US after his Wimbledon mixed doubles run with Eden Silver. Mike's a great guy. He's got a really interesting story that I think a lot of you will enjoy listening to. By his own admission, he started tennis a little bit late probably never really had a chance to be a professional tennis player, but managed to get himself to a US college and then started to build from there, built his network up, built his level up, which has now seen him go to many different countries, some of the biggest tennis tournaments in the world, hitting with some of the biggest stars in the world, including Roger Federer, Simona Halep, Novak Djokovic, to name a few. He recently was at the Madrid Masters event. We allowed him to leave the academy for a couple of weeks. How could we not? And he talks talks about that experience as well as his experience as he now moves into being a tennis coach in this game that we all love. I think you're going to enjoy this one. I'm going to pass you over to Mike Digby. So Mike Digby, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, really good. Really, really good. How are things? Very good. It feels it feels very strange to be having one of my colleagues who I'm used to <laughs> seeing over the last year on Zoom calls, going through meetings about Soto Tennis Academy to be talking on the podcast. But it's it's lovely to have you. And and for those for those listening, Mike Digby, now coaching extraordinaire at Soto Tennis Academy, but is still doing hitting partner work and has just come back from the WTA and ATP event in Madrid and also has spent a couple of years working with some of the biggest names in the sport as a, as a hitting partner. And as we promised you, listeners, we're, we're trying to give you all of the different lenses of the sport. And I think hitting partners, a good one that we haven't gone into yet, Mike. But as with all the guests, where did this tennis thing start with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I started playing tennis when I was really young, when I was like five, four, five, six years old. But I think 
the one thing that, that I found is, is I always had, I guess I was always a little bit better at the racket sports. Like I used to play badminton, tennis, table tennis. And I, I, I loved that element. And I loved the element of like the individual sport. Um, and it wasn't until later, until I was about probably 11, 12, 13, where I kind of thought, actually, you know what? Like I, I quite, quite like tennis. I started to get maybe a little bit better at that particular sport. And, and then, and then started competing when I was 13, 14, which I think to, to some is quite late. So I didn't play any of the, like the, the orange ball, the red ball, the green ball. I went straight into, into the yellow ball. So my actual tennis journey, I'd say, compared to a lot of, a lot of junior players, is probably relatively late. And, and then from there, it kind of just kicked on, kicked on, kicked on from, from there, because on that, and what you'll find, again, listeners, I apologise, you'll find me probably calling Mike Diggers because that <laughs> is, that's, that's his nickname to us all at the Academy. So I apologise if I do fall into that. But I guess we hear so much about, you know, this, this red, orange, green, mini tennis. It's an early specialisation sport. Everyone wants to jump on the bandwagon. We see it as well at the Academy. I'm probably guilty of it as a tennis parent as well. You know, it's because we compare. So now that you've kind of done the journey as someone who didn't, do you look back and think you would have been better off if you had maybe started a bit earlier? Or do you think that actually you've ended up better off going the, the more late development route? I think... I think I always and I just think about this a lot as a player, especially when I got to the age of like 17. I always used to feel like that I was always behind because I had never had those real early stages of development. But I think the more I think about it and at the particular time when I was 17, 18, a lot of the players that I used to practice with that were did go through the mini started to kind of drop out of tennis because they just basically had enough of it. It was just too intense, too early. So I look back and I'm, I'm actually happy that maybe I didn't come into tennis that, you know, and took it super seriously when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I think for me and, and with my personality, I think I'm glad that it was a lot more relaxed and, and, and a little bit more chilled out later on at the ages of 12, 13. So I personally think it benefited me. And what about, I guess that, that would, I, I can completely see that being true for the longevity of being in the sport. And there's obviously lots of capacity yeah, absolutely. As, as a player, as, as a hitting partner, as a as a coach. And, you know, I work with you and I know you absolutely have a love of the sport, you know, which sometimes mm. can be people can grow out of. But I guess in terms of developing top class, world class tennis players, do you think it's possible to go that route? I think it's tougher. I think that would be my my opinion would be unless you have a real strong foundation in place when you're, you know, you're 9, 10, 11, 12, I think it, it's tougher to then maybe really excel at the, the higher end of the game. But, it, it, you know, I think it's, it's, it's an opinion that people, you know, it's, it's different. I think you have people that just excel. And I've, I've used to know a few of my guys that I played against that just excelled in college that started a little later. And then I know players that started younger that, you know, from a development point of view, had all of the minis, were, were you know, and played lots of tournaments, got a lot of matches under their belt when they were younger, but ended up not playing. So, but from a, from a standpoint of 
can you produce world-class tennis players who start a lot later? I think it becomes a little bit more difficult. Because even what you're saying there, you started to complete compete properly 14, 15. That's the same age as the yeah. girl that you were hitting with in Madrid last week. Exactly. Yeah, who, exactly. Who, Golf, who, who then has exactly. gone on, gone on this week and beaten Sabalenka and has already had some amazing wins. So throughout this, I think what I'm really looking forward to, and I purposely haven't asked you too much at base about Madrid because I wanted it to be like the listeners yeah. today to actually kind of find out and get the first-hand insights through this conversation. But how, how was it hitting with Coco? How was her team? Tell us, is, is she going to be one of the next big superstars that everyone talks about? Yeah, it, it, first of all, it was amazing. It's amazing to see, to see someone so young, so composed, so professional, and have a real like mature outlook on her tennis. You know, and, and I think first and foremost, her team are, you know, absolutely doing things right. They're really supportive. They've got a great support network. She's she's clearly very, very talented. And the one thing that I think really stood out for me was she just takes everything in her stride. And it feels like that we're just playing tennis in, in a park court in, in America as opposed to playing at arguably one of the biggest events, you know, on, on, the, on the calendar. So, but no, she was, you know, just super super nice person and the the practices and, and and yeah i mean her level is is ridiculous it's off the charts you know it's just her uh, the one thing that really stood out for me was uh, just her ability to move the ball around the court and anytime that i felt like i could put her under any time pressure she just you know almost felt like it felt really easy for her to get out of those tricky situations when we were practicing yep. so yeah it was impressive for sure and do you think she stands out? Because obviously there is a lot of, and I'm going to give a little shout out to the tennis talker on Twitter, who I know loves listening to these podcasts while he has a cup of tea. And he he actually tends to think that there's an overhype of Coco Goff. You know, there's one of the things with being so good so, so, so early is almost people get a bit sick of hearing about them. Is she the mm. real deal? Is she, a, is she a multiple Grand Slam champion? Because I guess that's what we're talking about in terms of the hype. So yeah. Put your money where your mouth is, Diggers. What, is she going to be a multiple Grand well, Slam champion? In my opinion, yes. And, and I, I think she will. But I think Omra, on regards to like the hype and everything, I think. I think like anything, when you become very good, very young and are in the spotlight, I think everyone jumps to the, to the conclusion that this girl's going to suddenly win Grand Slams within like two, three years. But I think one thing that we've got to, got to understand is she has got so much development, you know, to go. And not just, I'm not just talking from a tennis point of view, from, man, her, you know, managing herself in, in the spotlight. You know, we had, we had Igor Svitek at the academy not long ago and, and, you know, she's in a similar situation where she's just won a Grand Slam very young. And all of a sudden now people are kind of thinking, oh, she's going to win five, six, seven, eight. Well, you know, she's still incredibly young and has got a lot to learn, not just on the tennis court, but just how to manage herself and, and, and on the off court with the off court responsibilities that she has and, and the tour life, the fans, the media. So I think the one thing that that I think we've got to take into consideration with Coco. She's like four years younger than Iga, and she's already already competing on the world stage and beating some incredibly good tennis players. So yeah. I think she will be a Grand Slam champion, multiple Grand Slam champion. 
but I think we've just got to give her time and also also just give her a chance to develop. Good answer. Really good answer. And I think it is, isn't it? It's like, and I found that having eager around at the academy. It was like, she just got so, as we all do, get used to our environment. So if you absolutely if you become a superstar and you have hype and you have these things, it's it's got to be hard to sometimes keep your feet on the ground and to understand why you're doing it. And I, and it, I think it goes to show how important the team is around the player, not just for forehands, backhands, serves you know, how to play tennis, but all of those other areas. And the the, the one that really stood out and probably my lasting opinion and of, of Eager's time at the academy, as well as being a lovely girl, was her, her saying, and it reminds me of the Notting Hill, the Notting Hill, I don't know if you've ever seen the Notting Hill movie with Julia Roberts and yeah. Grant. And Julia yeah. Roberts is a big, famous actress, superstar in the film. And she said, all I am is a girl asking a asking a boy to love me you know and going back to just you know very basics and very much that was kind of eager was was I'm just a little girl who needs to get back in touch with playing tennis because it's fun <laughs> and I enjoy playing tennis you know rather than having to live to all these expectations and when you're around these tournaments do you do you see that because obviously you're you're getting a pass into some really insightful things that fans around the world want to do. So I guess you're in a really good position to understand how these teams and dynamics work and how, how are they managing the pressure with some of these younger players? Yeah, it, it, it's arguably like one of the toughest transitions is, is the, the sudden, the sudden media, the, the fans, everything, all of a sudden you're like, you know, the next big thing you love. And I think, the one thing that stands out for me, and I think it was a big difference between the younger players, your Coco Goff, your, your Schweitex, you know, even your Ali Asims, you know, who are younger, you know, your early 20s, is you can, you can feel the team is a lot more compassionate, a little more, you know, they, I, guess, I guess a bit more forgiving. And whereas with, with your, your Nadals, your Federers, your... Djokovic is that the more veteran senior players on tour. It is very much they have this aura about them where they almost look after themselves and the teams there to support them if they're needed. Yeah. Uh, so so it's 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 a, it's a very different dynamic compared to to talking about the younger players. I think the younger ones are more. It feels like that the coaching team is also part of the family, the parents. You know, they're the more they're playing more of the parental role. Whereas, you know, the, the veterans are just a little bit more not like, what can I do here to get better? And I'm not saying that the young younger players don't do that, but it, it feels like the young you just manage the younger players and how they're feeling with the emotions and everything. And tr- almost in a way, try and keep them grounded and keep them keep them away from, from the fans a little bit more. Because, you know, when you're younger and you haven't had those experiences, it's tougher to know what to do in certain situations which is why the team is so important. Um, so, yeah, there's, de- there's a definite difference between the senior and the junior players on the tour. In terms of, I'm sure there's lots of lots of people listening and they're thinking, well, how do you get into something like that? So I know you obviously went on to, to university uh, uh, in America on, on a college scholarship, but how, how did your first 
I guess, entrance into being a hidden partner happen? And and any advice then for anyone that is looking to do the sort of similar sort of thing? Well, yeah, like you said, I, I went to, I played college tennis in America and going out there, I think I very much wanted to try and play after college. I was in that mindset of, you know, I wanted to try and play professionally. I got to a point where I was very dedicated and I really wanted to give it a go. But I think because, and just going back to why I started, because I started so late, I think my perception of the level needed to play, you know, on, on even to play futures was so far off. I wasn't honest enough with myself. And I think I then went to college and experienced the whole, you know, ups and downs, winning matches, losing matches, the amazing experiences that you get playing college tennis. And I think slowly after a year, two years, I was very much like, actually, and the older I got, the more mature I got, that my level in that particular time probably wasn't good enough to compete as a professional tennis player. I've known a few guys hit at Wimbledon and, and they've said it's an amazing experience more than anything. So I thought, well, you know, I'd love to know what the top end of the game looks like from that point of view, because I've just never been around it other than obviously when I was young, I watched at Wimbledon and at the ATP finals when it was at the O2. And so my coach back home actually knew the practice desk manager who just runs the practices um, up at Orangi Park and, and just basically put me in touch with him. And he, he, I guess the niche of being left-handed, there's not many left-handed hitting partners. So he was very much in need of a hitting partner at Wimbledon in 2018. Is this Pete? So I thought, is this Pete? Is, yes, Peter. Pete yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Pete Finn. And um, I just got in touch with him and, and and he said, yeah, come down. Like, I just had to send him over, obviously, my level. I played in college tennis and went down and just remember walking through the gates thinking... This feels so strange because I'm normally here as a fan, like supporting these players. And all of a sudden I'm now going to go and spend two, three weeks practicing with them. So I did, it was a strange one because I didn't know what to expect, but I also did know what to expect at the same time. It was a very strange feeling because you kind of think, well, I've got no idea whether or not my level is going to be good enough. You have those doubts when you walk in because it's not like I'm coming in and I've been eight, nine hundred in the world and I've practiced maybe with a few guys that are around three, four hundred. I just didn't have any of that experience. So, so I go in, I remember, I remember going in and I remember speaking to Peter, showing me around, and he goes, Okay, like, um, we've got you a couple of practices lined up today. And, and I remember just reading the name off the, off the little bit of paper he gave me. And the first one was Novak Djokovic. And I obviously went. When you when you uh, when you see that name and you think it's a bit of a tough start to be honest <laughs> because you know you'd have, you maybe like to work in even if with a few juniors feel the courts a little bit and then all of a sudden I'm you know an hour later I'm on court and then it was Djokovic we had Batista Agu I had a young Medvedev which was really interesting I have with uh, Naomi Osaka uh, John Isner which again was such a variety of players which was was amazing because obviously you see so many different lenses of the game because every every coaching team every player has obviously the game styles are so different so they all want something different which which in you know it's it tests my ability because I obviously basically have to do in a way what they want um and you have some that are a little bit more relaxed some players that are a little bit more demanding so that's how I initially got into it and um and it was uh yeah kind of just kicked off from there really and when you're, so let's say, so you walk on court, 
Novak Djokovic. Is he welcoming? Is he... Are the team welcoming? Are you just kind of part of the big machine that just is you, you just go there, kid, and just start hitting a few balls? How open are they with like like setting right today? We're gonna do this. You know, do you know what's happening? Give us, give us and give the listeners that experience. I think I think it's a great question. I think when you initially start especially if you, one, don't know the player or, um, you know, it's your first, like, hitting gig. All, <laughs> all I'm thinking about is, like, win, almost like win the first 10 to 15, 20 minutes. Put in a good performance to kind of relax. And I still do it now because it's still nerve-wracking. You still get nervous. And I think every player is it's so different. So you have players, I've been on court with players that are the most welcoming amazing people they're really relaxed and that obviously makes me relax and you then have some players that are the complete opposite and almost makes you feel like that you don't even want to be on the tennis court because you're so nervous because it's not and again I guess it's similar to in on a much smaller scale it's similar for me with with the media with the fans is is there's almost sometimes more people watching the likes of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal practice with, with the hitting partners, then there is the actual, some of the matches on the outside courts at the, the Grand Slams. Yep. So you've got to deal with these, these lots, like hundreds, sometimes thousands of fans watching you practice. And me, I've obviously never experienced any of that. So it's, it's more that the occasion and some, like you still like going back to your question is some players make you feel really welcoming and the team makes you feel really welcoming and you can really, have a really good connection with the player and the team. And then there's some that just genuinely don't want to say a word to you. And, and you just feel like you're just there to hit tennis balls and that it. And, and, I, and, you know, as much as I've enjoyed and had some amazing experiences, I've had some awful experiences as a, as a hitting partner. Some ones that you just think, oh, that's, that was a tough, tough morning. Um, so I think it's really dependent on the individual. Give us your toughest. My toughest, can I name names? Yes, they're the <laughs> um, listen. I think my toughest, my toughest one was Fognini, Fabio yeah, Fognini. For, for sure. Uh, I, I don't even it. think, I think I'll stop there. I don't even think I need to explain. Like, depending but, on the no, day, I, I would mean, imagine with him. Depending on the day, of course, yeah, of course. Um, I remember, I think it was, yeah, again, it was first. 2018, my first one at Wimbledon. I think maybe it was back end of the week. I even remember he was playing, he was playing Guido Peya, who is a lefty, in the third round of and I then got the call in in the morning. Fognini needs you needs a hitting partner for to warm him up for about roughly 30 minutes, five minutes. And I remember walking on court and and for whatever reason, I was really nervous, really really nervous. And I think in my head I built that Fognini is quite maybe it can be a difficult character and um and a walk on court and and nothing no nothing no hello no good morning just completely just just yeah really really tough so and I thought okay, okay like I've had a few of those already like it's no problem you know and, and 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 just on a side note the big thing for me is if the coaching team welcome you sometimes it doesn't matter what the player feels like I always feel like if the coaching team are really nice, genuine people and, and they're relaxed, then I actually sometimes forget who I'm practicing with. Because you yeah. often connect more with the team than maybe you do with the individual. Because, And I think this one thing that everyone forgets is 
he's Fognini at the moment is going out to play his third round of arguably the biggest event in tennis. Uh. He's locked into locked into a completely different frame of mind than ours at the coaching team are. Yeah. So I think I can understand sometimes why maybe they're less chatty. Um, but anyway, we we'll walk on court and and yeah, we'll start hitting balls. And I think my first three or four balls, I framed every single one. <laughs> and I'd happily admit that we all have those days. We all have those days. I, I'm I'm not you know I'm not a top top tennis player. I'm there. I'm tennis, but. And I just remember looking over him and he's just looking at me thinking like, oh, what is this guy? What's this guy doing? And I just, I never settled. I just never settled. And I think after about 20, 15, 20 minutes, I just remember his coach and saying, yeah, we're good. Thank you. Um, thanks a lot. And just basically I had to walk off court. It was a horrendous moment. It was an awful moment. I didn't say one word to him and I think, yeah so it was it was yeah it was it was my probably one of I haven't had many experiences like that I've had a few where I've played okay but like just the player's not very nice to me or whatever but that one was where I might yeah my level let let me down a little bit there but but I can empathize I mean I I remember with Josh Ward Hibbert he he warmed up Nadal for the quarterfinal or last 16 at French Open and at French Open, yeah. you really get a lot of crowds around the, the practice. Yeah. Court. It's like a full like stadium court almost. Yeah. And I was so tight feeding the ball to Nadal. Yeah. <laughs> it was like yeah. I could feel because he, yeah. I mean, I, I, have you hit with Nadal? I've served to Nadal, but I've never, I've never really You've hit with so Nadal. But I've, I've known a few players that have done this nerve wracking. I mean, he is. I didn't know what intensity was until that day. Like that was yeah, a scary. It was a whole new level of intensity that I never imagined existed. And actually, ironically, and, and Josh would have, I'll have to send him this because he'll he'll enjoy this little big up. But Josh, Josh, honestly, Josh pissed him off because Josh raised the 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 level and the, and the tempo a couple of times, and Josh was sort of player that could spray a few, you know, like he, I was tight. Yeah. I was tight for Josh. Yeah. And Nadal is hitting so big. And Josh a couple <clears> of times <throat> took him early uh, and Nadal gave him little looks as if to say, Hey, what are you doing kid? You know? Um, but yeah, I certainly had that kind of tightness in the arm as I was feeding the ball in towards Nadal. So fair play to put yourself in that position. And on that, so I guess, yeah, you bring up a really interesting point, Diggers, around, which I had not massively thought of before. You know, all of a sudden, hitting partners who haven't been in that arena before as such. You know, it's mm-hmm. one thing hitting, you know, we spoke to Tom Hill. I'd like to link that together in a minute. You know, when he's hitting at IMG, which is where he practices, you know, you hitting at Soto Tennis Academy, it's it's your environment. But to all of a yeah. sudden be have all of those eyes on you, Double barrel question. Firstly, how do you prepare? Are you mm. preparing like a match? Are you, you know, with your food, your sleep, your stretching, taking care of your body? And then secondly, how does a typical day look for you at these tournaments? I think because when I started hitting, I was obviously still playing. So for me, it didn't really vary that much as to regards to how I physically prepared. I yep. still get in the gym, I'd warm up. You know, sleep eight, nine hours a night, eat well, 
you know, your tip, you know, what you would normally do as, as, as a tennis player is, is try and look after your body as much as you can. Yeah. So from, from that element that, that, you know, that wasn't, I never really felt that stress with that element. Cause I kind of, I was quite good at that. I was quite disciplined and dedicated when I played anyway. Um, but from a mental point of view, it was almost a completely different, a different preparation in regards to I'm now going out and playing on the biggest stages in tennis. And the only people that can say have done that are the players that are good enough to do that or the hitting partners, you know? So it's, so I, I, and I will always remember I'd done Wimbledon. That was amazing. And then, and then went back to college and, and I ended up going, I was a hitter at the U S open and I, I just literally, I was, there's points where you freeze, where you just freeze and think, I'm about to go out on and practice in front of four to 5,000 people with Simona Hallett. And you, you're in the gym and you're warming up and that's fine, but it's not, it's not when you're, it's not the two, three, four hours beforehand. It's like the 10 minutes, five minutes beforehand when you're waiting to, if there's someone on the court before and walk out, that you just like, you have to mentally prepare. So I'd often, and it sounds crazy, but even, even as a hitter, I'd do some visualization stuff. Yeah. just to, to visualize what it might be like or just have a think right you know at the end of the day like I'm just on a tennis court I'm playing tennis with another person it's no problem it's 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 all good and I think that at the start I used to do that more whereas now because I've done quite a lot of it I'm a lot more a lot more relaxed with it and I think it helps because I know a few of the players I know the coaches so I think that that element of the connection with with the yeah. team helps it just naturally it just relaxes you a little bit more but but I think for me it was more it, because I was at the stage where I just I genuinely enjoyed it was enjoying it so much it's the first time I felt that the enjoyment overweighed the nerves and I think I was always a little bit nervous but I think when you walk out onto Arthur Ashe and you're playing with Simona Halep and you come off and you feel like you've you've you know you've given her what she needed and you've played well and you know it's a great practice. I haven't found a better feeling yet in in tennis. That is like you know I mean I've I like I said earlier I've never played to a level where I'm winning professional titles or yeah. winning rounds in professional events. So I haven't had that feeling. So I don't know what that feeling feels like. Yep. You know I've clinched rubbers for my school and college, which was amazing, an amazing feeling, but. Yeah, to hit on the world stage and, you know, Arthur Ashe and when we're at the ATP finals in the WTA finals, it's, it's an amazing feeling. So, but yeah, visualization is something that I think really helped me. And, and how does your average day look? So let's take Madrid last week. Yeah. How would your average day look? And would Madrid, yes. would Madrid differ to normal because of the, the COVID regulations? Um, it didn't no no it, it didn't it didn't differ I thought I maybe thought it might maybe there was you know separate bubbles but it it no it, it didn't differ too much depends on what tournaments very different but but in Madrid for example you know you'd be in at 7 a.m you'd have some food you'd 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 then go up to the practice desk and find out you'd either find out the night before or you'd find out in the morning it completely depends on depended on you know players sometimes players let the the practice test know okay I need a hitting partner or you know I need one in, in at this time but if they practice a little bit later that you know that that's why I'm a little bit later during the day so yeah you go in you you, you know find out who you hit and then if you're on a little less hours on 
think that was one time I was on with Ramos, Riv Vinulas at 9.30 in the morning. So I'd then go in the gym, I'd do my warm-up. I'd then obviously go to the court. And then there's times where you might have, have like, I had Ramos Vinulas, I had Christian Garin, and then I had Alcaraz, almost like back to back to back. So it's very much, you just got to know what courts you're on. And, um, and, and that normally you do, you do, you do no more than three hits in the morning and then you'd go have some lunch. I had the luxury of going to watch some matches. I had some great chats with some great coaches. You know, I was, you know, had the chance to ask for some advice from Ricardo Piatti. So some, some great chats during the day and then you'd, you'd, you'd come back and then in the afternoon, I think on, on one of the days I was then with Berrettini and Casper Ruud in the afternoon. And, a lot, a lot and, with the men, then, yeah. a lot with the men. Yeah, for, for, for this particular for this particular tournament in Madrid, which was probably the first ones, there was more with the men than there was with the women, which which is normally quite surprising because normally a lot of the men hit with each other. Yeah. Um, but then you know there were some days where, especially more near the start of the tournament, I think I was with Kvitova, Kerber, and Bencic. Um, so the days completely differ depending on one who the, the players are playing, uh, what they need. Um, generally, with if they play someone that is a lefty, you're always needed. Whereas sometimes if they play a righty, they might warm up with their coach, they might warm up with another player. So I think for me, I'm either extremely busy or not that busy at all. But I think the more the more I practice with with players, the more I get to know them the more then players can request you. Yeah. And I think when that connection is made with a player and a coaching team, it gets to a point more so with the men that they're not that worried whether you're right or left-handed. Okay, because that because if we go back a couple of years, you obviously made that connection with Simona Halep because you, yeah. from what you've explained there from the tournaments, it could be random players on any different day and and I would certainly think that players would quite like their same routine you know of, yes. the, of the same person so tell us how the how the kind of Halep relationship grew for you doing a little bit more specifically with her rather than being the tournament hitter yeah it's like anything I think often we go on about oh you need to be a certain level to do this you need to be you know x in the world to be able to be a hitting partner whereas often even and like we've experienced at the academy with coaching is is connection you can connect with with arguably if you can connect with the team more than the player you're always going to be brought back in because they want like you say they want routine so with Halep I connected with the team just really well I think we just like you just got along with them well like it was very relaxed the practices and I think then once you start to connect and once you start to get to know the player and and the coaching team on a personal level it then for them feels like you're part of the team yeah. and you and it's a more normal environment and it's the same for them they they are also dealing with you know the anxious the nerves anxiety sorry the nerves on a world stage you know i almost felt like with with certain players with Simona included is you you almost felt like that that i played a part in making it feel like we were just sitting in romania uh, yeah. back home and I think for them that's a massive a massive part in what they see in, in a hitting partner and also in a coach you know it's so important that they feel comfortable on the court with you because if they don't then it doesn't matter how good you are as a hitting partner or a coach the connection's not there it's going to be really difficult to, to travel so so that 
that was my my big takeaway. I think with 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 Simona, and then I've done a lot of hitting with with Medvedev as well. If you can connect with them, sometimes your level to a certain extent it doesn't matter. It really so, doesn't matter. So come on then, how how do you connect with Medvedev? <laughs> I tell What's you, what, uh, I was. I don't know if there's a secret. I think it's. I think it's. You just got to be yourself, and I think players at that level, well, players at any level, to be perfectly honest, they can feel if you don't connect, if you, you're not yourself, they can feel the tension, they can feel, you know, the nerves from from me especially, and I've played players where I've felt nervous and I haven't been myself, and then I haven't been asked back to hit with them. So if you can just be yourself, have conversations that aren't around tennis around normal life and obviously a big one at the moment in Madrid was just obviously COVID just like how's it traveling with COVID you know the simple basic conversations where they just think that's you know what he's he genuinely cares about me as a person not just a tennis player to have a laugh have a joke you know um, there's certain I guess certain topics we talk about which probably can't be discussed on the, on the podcast but, but just have a good laugh with, with them because they're also and they're also my age a lot of them that I hit with, they're early 20s. So I think I'm, you know, as hitting partners that are a little bit younger, we can be a little bit more relatable. It's yeah. more relatable to, to the certain topics that you talk about. So, What's he like? What's Medvedev like? I mean, I, I find the guy hilarious, but what's what's he really like? He's, yeah, he's hilarious. He's, he's a little bit wild, a little bit wacky. Um, you Almost like what you see is what you get with him. He's just very, yeah, he's really funny. But but like with all these players, I think when you're travelling for 35, 40 weeks of the year, you have to have that ability to just sometimes laugh it off and yeah. just laugh it off and and, and just, just try and relax a little bit because there's so much pressure, outside pressure on them playing that they've got to have their downtime. And even sometimes on court, we'll just stop the practice halfway through and, and just play like, bounce down they play some touch or because their their practice is normally relentless just having a five ten minutes to just chill out and have fun on the tennis court is, yeah. is so valuable to them that brings me into a, a topic i definitely want to touch on diggers is is i guess you, you were there a little bit before the tournament started and you've obviously been around these tournaments before it starts and then there's then tournament practice. How different are those practices, you know, from a player maybe one, two, three days out of competing compared to obviously the warm-ups are different, but compared to then those mm. practices that are happening as the tournament is running? I think, again, I've said it a lot, it's obviously player-dependent, but from a, from a general point of view, it feel obviously it's a lot more intense. I think the days, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go to two areas here. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna speak for the men, and then I'm gonna speak my opinion on the women. For the men, there's a lot like a lot of practices. What throughout from a tournament, they're practicing twice a day, the hour, hour and a half, which you know, three hours a day. It's still very very intense, and I think it's a lot more maybe general, general stuff, you know, stuff that they're maybe working on, that they've been working on the off-season stuff, that generally parts of their game that they feel like that they need to get better at in general, regardless of who they're playing. And so I think that's, it's quite, yeah, it's very intense and, and just can be very, yeah, longer practice, longer days. Whereas 
for the men when you get into the tournament and it's one thing that I, I've seen is there's this switch of like they're so chilled out really relaxed really and, and sometimes it's strange because you think it would be the other way around but yeah. but for the the men that I've practiced with it's very much like right the prep's almost done the prep yeah. is, is done I've done the bits that I wanted to get done it's now running certain specific patterns on the court that is going to then beat their you know, so when I practice with and I, no one will mind me saying this because I do it for every time that I ever play someone that's playing Nadal is every time I'm forming someone up that, that plays Nadal I have to hit with a lot more heavier shape I just have a lot have that? net a lot do more you thin. have that in the locker? I, had, I, I literally like it was so empty my <laughs> locker was so empty like it was so I just don't have that in the locker but I eventually figured out that if I stand a little bit further back and my ego of taking their ball so early goes out the window. I can play with a little bit of shape. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I have to stand further back. But, um, but to, the, to the listeners, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a joke at the at the academy. Mike uh, is is a fantastic tennis player, but he's maybe a little bit stronger on the backhand wing. So uh, when, I agree with that. So when these players warm up with with you, they must get a shock when this ball starts kicking off the court. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, honestly, yeah. If you put me in the backhand side, then I'm I'm fine. But no, it, it, you just have to you just have to adapt a little bit. But um, it does so open some it. it does open yeah. something though in my mind. I'm like, again, sorry, and, and pardon the the way that I'm trying to explain this, but I, I used to read a lot of John Grisham books, and on, on all of these John Grisham books about law, it was always the jury that people would try and tamper with the jury, you know, and try and, you know, pay them off, get into the jury. And I guess, I guess you're being subjected to some, some pretty insightful information. You know, like I say, we all know mm. that Nadal's playing high and heavy to the backhand, but uh, uh, the, the nuances and, and the, and the patterns and the, and the different things, is there ever been someone that's tried to tap you up to get some, some of that information? Um, I personally have never experienced it, but that being said, I can see how and why it would happen. I've never, I'll rephrase that. I've never experienced it in person. So I've never had anyone come up to me at tournament and say, oh, look, I certainly, I don't know, let's, for example, let's say Nadal's playing someone and, and the, the coach of the, the opponent of Nadal comes up and says, oh, like, you know, I saw your opponent with you know, such and such, what, what, you know, what do you think, like what you've been doing kind of thing. So I've never had that where it's come in up person. in person, person. I have had a few, few messages on Instagram that would, would lead me to believe that they are trying to get information out of me that uh, probably would go against my morals. Let's put it that way. Um, so, so it happens because, and I think it's a, it's a kind of a different topic, but, it's so competitive. Everyone's trying to gain an advantage, yeah, whether we like it or not in sport. And it's not just in tennis. It's in, in every single sport. Is And we hear stories about it all the time, about, about match fixing, about betting. You know, it, it's unfortunately, it is part of sport. And, and people, at the, especially at the highest level, there's more money on the line and often, I guess, more maybe more futures level that extra money can pay for your next two, three weeks in tournaments. So I'm not saying it's right, and I, I never will say it's right, but 
you can understand why players would think about doing it. Absolutely. So, so it's, yeah, 100%. I have one more thing I want to jump into. And it's been great. You know, this has been a great chat. And I know that uh, I've asked you to put a few of these thoughts together for the team as well. But I think it's, you know, we're very mm. lucky to have you as part of the team and going and gaining all of this invaluable knowledge and insight. But in terms of that, what we're seeing, especially on the women's tour, and I guess with British players or British coaches, we've seen it happen. We've had Tom Hill mm. on, on the podcast who happened to hate the hitting part in a bit. But I think that was, yeah. it sounds like your days in Madrid and Wimbledon are a bit easier than maybe his days in IMG, where I think he was maybe, yeah. you know, to the grind for 10, 12 hours a day. And then Andrew Bettles, who's obviously who's working with Svitolina, um, they started as hitting partners. And then next thing you know, they are taking a more prominent role within the coaching team. It happened with Andrew Fitzpatrick, who was one of my first ever players at the academy. You know, mm. he he did worked in in that regard with Sloane Stevens. Why do you think that happens so much? And why do you think it happens more on the women's side than it would on the men's side? I think a great question. I think that first of all, women generally prefer to practice with the men because I think it's maybe a little bit more challenging for them and it can be more challenging you know in general so I think then the opportunity be to be a hitting partner in regards to Andy and Tom's circumstances would happen more so with the women than it would with the men I think you know that's just the opportunities there because we've seen we've seen you've got Jim Kins who's Serena Williams hitting partner full-time Sasa Beijing has also been a hitting partner for various players on tour. So there's more of opportunity within that realm of work than there would be on the men's side because generally the men practice with each other a lot more. Yep. So I think my, my, my first thing is opportunity would be a big thing. And then when you're with the player and you've gained that opportunity, like I said earlier, is, is if you can connect with the player, they trust in your ability to, you know, obviously not just to hit, but they enjoy having you around as a person when you get to that level it's it's so many fine tweaks in your game that often they value the relationship and feeling comfortable on the road x amount of weeks a year more so than they maybe would a physical coach that is there just to coach them all the time because if you get these players in the right frame of mind before a tennis match and 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 they really feel really comfortable and they feel great then even if you're not adding to the physical coaching they will produce a level which will win them especially at the top top end of the game that will win them tennis matches and will win them tournaments because they've already had that experience experience you know a lot of them you know if you look at you know, someone like a Caroline Wozniacki or a, or a Azarenka they've gained and gained so much experience that they don't necessarily need to tell someone how to win a tennis match. They need someone to be there for them that they can relay information to if they need to, and that can understand them as a person, maybe more so as a player. So I think you often see the hitting kind of role turn into a traveling coach because they feel comfortable traveling with them for 30, 40 weeks a year. Good answer. And the only other one I would maybe add in there, as a, as a thought I would have would also be the ability to work on specifics. 
So if if these players are, are spending 30 weeks, 35 weeks on the road, if you're hitting with each other, it's often maintenance work. It's playing points. It's getting yeah. ready to sharpen your tools to to compete. Whereas if you lose on Monday in Madrid and you're playing in Leon the following Monday, you're probably staying in Madrid until Friday and practicing and going to Leon on Friday. And all of a sudden you've got four, five, six practice days, which if you've got that hitting partner with you, you can really work on the specific side of your game. And that absolutely. seems to be quite a big appeal for it as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's completely true. And I think then, you know, if we talk, you know, with the likes of Tom and Andy, they've gained so much invaluable experience traveling with, you know, with the players that they're with, with Sakarian and Tom, obviously, with Daniel Collins, and then with Andy, with um, Svitolina, that like, there's an element of just, you know, they obviously play to a good level, they've hit really well, and then they're learn, they're constantly learning, you know, every day how to manage manage players, learn how to deal with the tour life to a point now where they've done it for X amount of years. Yeah. So now they're relatively experienced in that in that yeah. realm of work. So think they can then they understand their player so well that they that they're now then tapping in you know, as the coach to what they need to get better because their tennis knowledge through through playing would also be relatively high anyway so 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 that's why women often look for, look for hitting partners that, that that play to a good because they will always have a, a good tennis base tennis knowledge anyway because they can also feed back on and that, which is what happened to me quite a bit is is you feed back to the co coach and the player as to how the ball feels from my side. Do you yeah. feel like the ball is the ball heavy enough? Do you feel like that you you you're being hurt on your backhand wing? Do you feel like that you know they're taking my time away or whatever it might be? And sometimes yeah. from a coaching perspective, that's tough to gauge if you're not physically experiencing experiencing the ball. Very good. My 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 last question before we go into our famous quick fire round is would you view your your tennis so far as a success or a failure? It's um, a good question again. I personally would view my tennis as a success, not based on the level that I've been exposed to, but based on the opportunity I was given being late to the sport compared to what I've done. So, for example, I feel like because as a junior, I was never was never a top junior, even in my county, let alone, you know, region, let alone, you know, the country. So for me to go from playing at a college as well that I absolutely loved, but again, it's, it's not a top in regards to in regards to tennis. You know, it's, it's a great school and I absolutely loved my experience, but... I wasn't playing at a top division one school where the opportunity to go pro, I could, you know, you know, I was in that spotlight. So to go from, to go from maybe, I guess, playing county level tennis to then getting a bit better in college to then, you know, experiencing being with Grand Slam champions as a hitting partner, uh, you know, from that point of view, I'm really proud, proud to say that I, I can do that and that I've done that because I think, I never thought first and foremost that my level would ever be good enough to practice with some of the best guys in the country, you know, at 16, 17, let alone with, with, you know, Federer, Djokovic, all these top, top players. So for me, 
I would definitely consider it a success. Yeah, and, and I would agree. And I just think it's such an important message to people listening because I guess one of my bigger passions and ambitions is to to almost dispel the myth that it's impossible to make a success of tennis. And it's there's there's a bit of a there's a bit of a cynical view out there that why would we waste time, money, energy in tennis when there's only a few people that make it? And and I disagree with that. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. There's I think there's thousands and thousands of people that are making it in this sport. You know, it's just how making it and success is defined. You know, and like you say, you started competing at 14. You weren't really much higher than county level at 14 or 15, but you've done it the right the right way. You've worked hard. You've been a good person doing it. You know, you've opened doors. The the story we haven't told is how we met, which was at Wimbledon in the hit and partner hit and partner capacity. You know, Evan Hoyt. 2019 was was preparing for the challenger tour in in america whilst at the same time playing the mixed doubles to the quarterfinals during wimbledon and our daily routine was to get a hitting partner for two hours in the morning to play some singles indoors on the hard courts before he then did his warm-up on the grass courts ready to play his mixed doubles and on two occasions, you know, we met, you know, you did a great job again with Ev. I couldn't tell you how well you played. I know it was just a good session and I know we had a good chat and, and it was nice to be around. And, you know, just to echo those points that you've made, we then made a connection, stayed in touch. You've now lived in Spain for a year and a half, two years, met your future wife, maybe, should I say that? Oh, <laughs> uh, she's going to kill you for that. But, but, but all of those things have come, have come from that. And, and that has to be viewed as a success. It has to be. And, and I, I think it's, a, it's an inspiring story and it's a sort of story that we have to tell because it's not just the Andy Murray, Rafael Nadal, Serena Williams stories that we need to grab onto. So, so well done, mate. It's, it's honestly, I thought was a fantastic, fantastic chat. I am very proud to stand alongside you on a daily basis at sort of tennis Academy and long may that continue, but also long may these great experiences continue for you as well. Are you ready for the quick fire round? Absolutely. This is the only reason I've come on that. Hitting or coaching? Coaching. Clear courts or hard courts? Hard courts. Your favourite tournament? Wimbledon. Your French Open female champion 2021? Sabalenka. Igor Svontek. Your your 2021 male champion, French Open? Dominic Team. Do you prefer being at the net or the back? Uh, at the net. Forehand or backhand? I think we gave that away earlier. <laughs> yeah, backhand. <laughs> Your favourite ever player to hit with? Roger Federer. Tell us, tell us. I can't, I know this is quick fire, but come on, give us a Roger Federer story. <laughs> I always, I practised with him a lot at the APP finals uh, in 2019 when it was at the O2, and I will always remember he practices at Queen's Club, which is, for people that don't know, it's literally the other side of London compared to the O2. 
I think it's about an hour, hour and a half drive in, in traffic um, in London. And I remember first being told that, right, you know, you're going to be a hitting partner for Roger Federer. But there was a catch because we weren't sure whether or not he was going to dial at the at the O2. And he ended up, he didn't play Nadal. But so I was very much like, well, so he was like, but he wants you to be there. He wants to practice with you and be there, but he's not sure how before. He's not sure, you know, whether it will be with you, whether it will maybe be with one of the right-handed hitters. So I ended up getting taken over to, to Queen's Club um, and was warming up. And he was like incredibly late, like so late, like like an hour, hour and a half late. And obviously this would I'd arguably say that this was the most nervous, yeah, for sure more than Fognini most nervous I've ever been on about stuff on a tennis court because this guy is like not just arguably the best tennis player ever, arguably one of the best athletes ever, you know. So so I walk on and I warm up and he's just taking ages, ages and ages and ages. And and he eventually eventually comes in and, and he says hello. And I am I just I, I'm incredibly nervous thinking just right, come on, just really focus here. And it ended up being to the day, probably one of the best practices that I've ever had. That I'm is like Ivan Lubacic, who was his coach, was was the nicest guy ever, and he was asking. We had chats about football. We had chats about. I think I'd either just grad, yeah, just graduated. He was saying, "Oh yeah, I know Michigan," and we were chatting about his kids. Just a really down to earth person that that made me feel like a normal person then you again you 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 have a drink and then oh, there's a bit of a pause and you just think oh my god like Roger Federer is sitting next to me so um I think and then eventually I think we build quite a nice little little connection and, and um and at any time that I've seen him at tournaments say hello to him so it's been it's been yeah it's it was it was a really interesting start kind of thinking but no, I'm going to practice Roger Federer but I have no idea whether I'm going to hit a tennis ball with him so it was a yeah, it was an interesting one. Brilliant. Apart from Fognini, who's the hardest person that you've hit with? The hardest. Yeah, so the most difficult. From from a level point of view, Stefano Sitsipas. Right, okay. Just absolutely crunches the ball. And I and, and I think it didn't help that I was playing, I was practicing with him as well at the ATP finals on the quickest court that I've ever played on. It was just like, it was quicker than Wimbledon on the grass. Like it was such a quick indoor hardcore that year. And yeah, how I managed to get a few balls back, I don't know. But um, yeah, no, that was from a level point of view. Ugh, ridiculous. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? Now I've been thinking long and hard about this. So this isn't just a spare of the moment. There was a few things that I thought of, but I couldn't say them because I don't think they would have gone down very well. So the one that I thought was was appropriate would be, I think that the men get one coaching timeout per match, including the Grand Slams. Very good. And who should our next guest be on the podcast? Uh, oh, that's a good question. What you got in your locker, I'm man? I'm going to say, and I'm only saying this because... I think it would go down well with the British public. Is Murray? Have you have you got any? You know what? Like no one else can do it. 
What, why, why are you going to be able to get Andy Murray on when nobody else? I mean, he's mom. I got in touch with Judy and Judy, Judy put me to his agent. Do you know what I mean? So, so come on, you've got to give me a realistic one. Unless you, unless you've got it in your All right. bag. All right. Okay. A realistic one. Taylor Fritz. Let's get it on. I reckon. Let's get it on. Diggers. Great chatting, mate. Amazing. No, really, really good. Really appreciate it, Dan. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, what a lovely treat that was to have, as I said at the start, one of our own, Mike being a Soto tennis coach. And as always, I've got Vicky next to me. And what a great speaker he was. Where's that been hiding all this time? I know, I know. That's exactly what I thought. Who knew he was such a good storyteller? But doesn't that show, I mean, the main thing for me, you don't need to have been this brilliant junior or played on the tour to have these unbelievable experiences in tennis. Yeah, and that's what we, when we set out on this podcast, it was to get these messages across. You know, I often think we look at the the Andy Murray story or the Serena Williams story, and quite often that's an unattainable possibility, which I think turns people away from the sport. You know, and I think with us being able to share these honest messages you know, Mike, up until quite a late age, hadn't really dreamt of playing on Rod Laver Arena or doing anything like that. Probably didn't even know the Australian Open at 13 or 14. Yet he's knuckled down, he's got stuck in, and he truly has used tennis as this vehicle that we always talk about to be able to gain so many amazing experiences to be building amazing networks, to be working with amazing people like me and you. <laughs> okay, maybe we shouldn't say that, but, you know, it really has taken him to some great places. And for him to then be able to share those stories with us, I thought was really enriching, actually. And, and I hope lots of people that are sitting there thinking, I'm only playing tennis once or twice a week. I'm never going to be this. You can be what you want to be. You know, you get you get stuck in, you know, dream big. And, and realise that there's lots of fantastic places that you can go with your tennis. It doesn't just have to be lifting a Wimbledon trophy. I mean, just look, he walked onto that court with you at Wimbledon, hitting with Evan, and he's now in Spain. You know, it's amazing where these experiences can take you. Yeah, and it's, it's sliding doors, isn't it? I don't know if anyone's ever seen that film, but I, I would recommend it. And Are you going to butcher another movie quote? <laughs> probably. I'll stay away from the quotes, but it really is. You never know, and unless you take those steps, unless you make those phone calls, you never quite know where it's going to be. You know, And on the back of that, he then got in touch with us, and then I'd like to think he's now got a, a fantastic job and life out here in Spain. And, and, and to use a couple more of the examples, I mean, Andrew Fitzpatrick was one of our first ever players at the academy. You know, he ended up being a hidden partner with Sloane Stevens. Next thing you knew, he ended up being her coach. We've got the British duo of Tom Hill, who's being on the podcast, hitting partner, was about to start law school decided to to make the trip to Florida to start hitting some tennis balls over a net over the net with various different professional tennis players and now here he is coaching Maria Sakari who as of today is in is in the quarterfinals of 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 the French Open and this and the same with Andrew Bettle so it really does seem like that pathway is is something that that also brings people to the top level of the sport and there does seem to be quite a lot 
of young coaches who have started off as hitting partners who are now coaching some of the big names on the WTA tour? Yeah, the, the, there is lots, and you know, you'll you'll if you spend time at the Grand Slams or WTA Tour tournaments, you will see quite a lot of young male coaches working with the females. And I, and I think for me, if you look at area of priority, and in in general, WTA Tour or even the the higher level of the ITF Tour, if you you could have one attribute of a coach traveling with you it would often be that they hit well because think of this you you turn up in Bulgaria you turn up in Singapore you turn up in these places and now you have the stress of trying to find a practice partner first and foremost you know so it takes that stress away you then often if you lose early in a tournament and you're not playing for another week it's not as simple as let's just fly back home you know, you're often then on the tour, so it's about how are you improving your game whilst you're on the tour. And I think you then I can hear people saying, well, why don't the men have the hitting partners? Well, I think there is a fundamental difference in terms of how, in general, the men like to train and how the women like to train. You know, and the men will quite like to have a bit of a rhythm hit, hit some balls and then play a lot of open points. Whereas the women's game is so heavily weighted towards first strike tennis, serving third ball patterns, and then also second serve returns, you know, hitting your spots. Picture this, I'm practicing with you, and I want to practice my serve and third ball for 45 minutes. You're probably not feeling great hitting returns for 45 minutes. So so there almost needs to be someone in the hierarchy that's not getting the best practice. So that stress and pressure is taken away. If you have your own personal hitting partner, these guys obviously know the sport pretty well. They're on the tour for a couple of years and they get to know the players really well. And you can see why it seems to fit quite nicely. Um, and I would imagine that the ones that have most money will have a hitting partner and a coach with them. But... Not everyone's got that that sort of money. I also think you've got to have a certain type of personality as well. You've got to be pretty confident to be able to walk into these very daunting situations, you know, not knowing the reception you're going to get. But again, that's another life skill he's developing, isn't it? A few months ago, I didn't actually know what imposter syndrome was. It was not something that had ever oh, no? come to my... Well, I'd never heard of it. I mean, I reckon I've had it now that I now that I know what it is, but I'd actually never heard it. But it seems to be a bit of a buzzword that people have used on the podcast. And it almost doesn't get more than that. You know, you haven't made it as a professional tennis player. Now, here you are having to hit tennis players, you're not hitting any tennis players, hopefully, but <laughs> you have to hit tennis balls with these tennis players that are superstars, you know, that have got millions in the bank, win the, the biggest trophies that we see on the Sunday. And there you are having to walk onto some of the biggest courts in the world and put the ball exactly where they want it. Because rest assured, listeners, if these players aren't getting the correct speed, depth, spin on the ball you know they have no problem telling the hitting partner to do that you know so I've seen many a hitting partner crumble I've heard of many that have been kicked out <laughs> mid-tournament and never to return again and and having 
got to know Mike so well over the last 18 months. It, it is a big part of his character that I have to commend him on. You know, his ability to take feedback. You know, he's got a thick skin. You know, his ability to want to learn. And, and almost... I can imagine him in that environment saying, okay, tell me, tell me what you want and I'll, and I'll try and hit the ball harder. I'll try and hit the ball flatter. And there's a lot to be said for that. And, you know, I wish him every success. Obviously, we love having him at the academy, but I think he certainly has a very bright future in, in the sport. So who would make you the most nervous? Opposite side of the net, having to be a hitting partner. Which player? Rafa. Really? Rafa on a clear court. <laughs> on a clear court. I've experienced as a coach and I can't tell you how nervous I was feeding the ball to him. <laughs> and that was that was like one in one in every 30 or 40 shots. I didn't have to move. I only all I had to do was pull the ball out of my pocket, <laughs> make sure I got a decent connection, decent firmness of of ball strike and make sure it's not too deep. I hit one that I caught beautifully. It almost skidded off the baseline and he gave me a look as if you do that again. Get off my court, kid. You know, and the because the intensity, it was the the intensity that he had was just unbelievable. I'd never I'd never been in Intimidating? Yeah, un, like I can't, I can't explain it. It, the, the, it reminded me of, of when we went to watch professional boxing fight. Of just that, that absolute intensity. Nothing else in the world mattered. You know, he, uh, we managed to get a quick picture with him, but he had no, not that he had no time, but it, it was, it was a hindrance to him. He was, he was in the zone. You know, he was about to go on court for, I believe it was last sixteen at French Open, and he ended up winning that day. I think two love and one. And you could just see it, that, and that's how he prepares. And I would say probably that's a little bit different to maybe some of the male players. Um, so he would definitely be, be the hardest male player for me. Um, then I guess Serena jumps to mind. That would be, I would think that would be hard. You know, Moritogalu Mar- maybe, you know, putting his hand through his lovely, lovely locks, and as as Serena belts another one past you, I think that would be that would be quite challenging as well. What about yourself? To be honest, any of them. <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, Federer, I wouldn't be able to um, make eye contact without blushing, let alone, let alone it a forehand. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he's certainly one of the most, most chilled ones out there. That's true, that's true. He'd have, to, he'd have to put me at ease rather than the other way around, I think. <laughs> so now we're talking about Federer. I'm going to have to take over, listeners, for the rest of Vicky. We've lost Vicky now to... To Roger Federer, and 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 I've spoken very highly of young Mike Digby, and and I mean every word I say, um, but I have to get on him a little bit for his French Open predictions. Here we are, we're we're quarter final stage of the event, and he's bombed. He's bombed out, bombed out early. <laughs> uh, Dominic Team went out first round. And Sabalenka went out third round, so he is absolutely done there. So stick to stick to hitting partnering and stick to coaching, <laughs> and stay away from picking picking the winners of Grand Slams, Mike. Is this where we have to hear you show off about your picks? Well, I mean, we don't have we don't have to unless you unless you guys really want to hear. Um, I'll go on then. Come on then. We'll 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 talk about my picks as it stands today. Um, yeah, we've just watched Schwantek 
last night move into the quarterfinals is looking incredibly strong. I do hope she can keep the expectations in check. You know, now when you look along that list, she definitely stands out. And she just needs to stay in her little bubble that she has going with her team. Uh, but I've certainly been making fun of the French Open panellists when Barty went out on second round. We never like to see anybody going out to an injury. Uh, so that was one of my picks. And then the one that I'm being really excited about is the Spanish girl, Bedosa, who was my dark horse. And she she's also through to the quarterfinals as well. So it's it's been... I've, I've loved the women's event this year at the French Open. It's really open some incredibly exciting players. Coco Goff into the quarterfinals. You know, some of the matches, the Kostuk match last night with Shrontek was fantastic. Watch out for Kostuk over the next few years. She's got a bright future. Yeah, 18 years old. Yeah, eight, she's 18. There's a lot There's a lot of exciting girls coming through. And yeah, I still stand by it. Let's see, we're going to get a new French Open winner on the men's side as well. You know, whether it's Pass or maybe Zverev, but I'm going to stick my neck out and I'm going to keep, keep my boy Stefanos. He's my pick still. I've not changed from that. But wherever you are in the world, keep enjoying the rest of the French Open and then we don't have long before Wimbledon comes up as well so we will be back with our panellists as well to go through review what's happened at the French Open and then take you through a little preview for Wimbledon as well so watch out for that one but until next time I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables <laughs>